Welcome back to Disability Inc. I'm here with Ruth DeRoma. I'm Lori Podvesker. Um, this is part two. If you missed part one, you can go to our website and find it. So uh, you mentioned Michael, your son. Yes. And we want to hear more about him um, and know that he had disabilities. And yes. Tell us about that and uh, what your role was like advocating for him. Absolutely. Um, my son Michael was um, this kind of very bright-eyed, bushy-tailed little uh, guy who was always, um, you know, kind of looking around, touching things, poking at things, and never sitting still. Um, and Michael was, um, I, when Michael was in preschool, um, I got Where did you guys live? We lived on the Upper West Side. Okay. And when Michael was in preschool, I got a call from his preschool teacher saying, you know, Michael refuses to sit in the circle. When we have circle time, Michael won't sit in the circle. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I kind of just looked at it as, well, he's just precocious and he's just, you know, full of life. And then, you know, I get another call. Michael refuses to take a nap. And it was kind of like, welcome to my world. I don't think he ever took a nap from the day I brought him home from the hospital to, to now. Um, and so things started building. And the preschool teacher, you know, made some comments. But I... This was in the late 80s. Yeah. I, I didn't know that, you know, I, I thought genuinely, since I had a fair amount of energy, and I thought it was just another energetic little boy, as they say. Um, and then by the time he got to school, to, you know, to kindergarten, um, it really started to, you know, he wasn't somehow picking up things. He was funny, had this incredible mischief about him, and he was always getting into things. Anything with a plug, you had to be really careful because he would plug things in no matter what they were or where they were. <laughs> he, um, back then, you know, if you wanted to regulate a television program or television, they had these boxes that you could attach to the TV to kind of censor, I guess. Remember the rabbit ears? Yeah, those <laughs> kinds of things. But somehow, and I'm not sure how, Michael figured out how to break into it and re when he was really little, and no matter what I would do to reset the thing, <laughs> he somehow figured out, maybe when he was just watching me doing it or whatever, but somehow he always figured out how to circumvent it. And I remember one night I heard voices coming out of his room, and I went, what in heaven's name? And I went in there, and he had strung string from one side of the room to the other, gotten a wire hanger, which he attached to literally a transistor radio, and was talking to the livery, livery cab drivers <laughs> through their CB radios. He kind of picked up the frequency and the string. If he started to lose somebody, he would just pull the um, hanger further down the string. And so the voices were the livery cab driver screaming at him to get off the CB. And at that point, I knew this was going to be some little critter <laughs> that we were going to have to contend with. Um, as it turned out, genius. Well, yeah, it, it was a mathematical genius, but he also had um, 
severe ADHD. And did they name it back then? Yeah, they did. They started to. In fact, there were magazine. I remember New York Magazine, you know, having a, a title. This is what it is. You know, all these kids now. And Michael really had it. And he also had very severe learning disabilities. And what was kind of amazing is that you could see it going in, but it wasn't coming out. Processing issues. The processing issues, because he was funny and, you know, kind of wise in some ways beyond his years. But the information was getting stuck. And so finally, we um, had him tested. And the school started seeing things, and we went. How old was he? Oh, he must have been about five or six at that point. And so wait, he was talking to the cab drivers before he was five yes. or six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> the visual of that is amazing. Yes, it was really so boy in his room in like the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's very weird science. Remember that movie? Yes, exactly. It really was. I mean, and and you really had to be careful because no matter what you were doing, he would stare at someone using a computer, and he would kind of just... The big computers back Yes, then. exactly. And he would just take it in. So you knew that every keystroke you were making, he was kind of memorizing it in a way, because he was going to go back and do it. And then it start, when he started on the computer games, he literally started hacking into them when he was really young. And he would get in and buy him a new game, and two days later he'd reach the end of it. You know, five million points or something because he had done it and hacked it. And so it was amazing. And we were constantly kind of selling back and buying new computer games because that's what you did then. The Radio Shack days. Yes, exactly. So um, what was really very wonderful was that he was had great spirit. But that spirit really started to take a nosedive. And this poor guy, for as bright as he was, couldn't learn and couldn't you know he was struggling and until I really understood what was wrong you know you, as a parent you just think what am I doing wrong what what happened you know why isn't he understanding and you start to think at least back then is there something really wrong in here if I did something wrong yeah, he's not lazy it and it hurt it really mm. hurt to think that maybe something happened um, you know it was a easy pregnancy a hard birth did something happen those kinds of concepts start going through your mind that you can't believe that your child is struggling like this and failing and crying and coming home saying I'm stupid and when you know he's not. So it's he, very, very hard. So it is. And I know so to bring it to today, when I talk to parents and I hear in their voices this desperation, I it brings it back to me, but I do what I do because I don't want them to feel that way. I want them to know there's help. Mm. And plant some uh, hope. And I remember calling resources for children with special <laughs> needs back then mm. and saying to them, what is this? What should I do? And I remember their answer basically was, you need to get him tested. 
And I thought, okay, well, we got to do this. So was he initially evaluated by the school system, or you did it independently? Um, we, we, the school system basically said, did evaluate him, but they threw a couple of weeks of um, Orton Gillingham at him initially and then stopped. And over the summer, believe it or not, and stopped and said, that's it. He's, you know, and I, I said, that's not it. That's, he's so still... You know, um, so we we did um, you know have to go outside because especially then learning disabilities weren't as recognized. We're talking about the 80s and even into the early 90s, and especially the New York City Department of Ed at that point, or the Board of Education at that point wasn't picking up on them. But I knew in my heart of hearts there was something else. So when we finally did have him evaluated by a neuropsychologist, she shook her head and said, this child is so unbelievably dyslexic, dyspraxic, mm. dysgraphic. She, and she just, and I, of course, cried. I just sat and cried. And she said, Did you feel a sense of relief, though, knowing that it had a name? Not at that moment, at that, not at that very second, but when she looked at me and said to me, Ruth, why are you crying? I said, because what's going to happen to him? That's scary. And she turned to me and she said, Ruth, now we know. Now we can make something happen. Now we can work on it. And there are ways of working on it. There's techniques that we can use. There's ways of teaching him. He's he, has a learning he has learning disabilities, but there are ways of teaching him. And suddenly, you know, I fought at that point to get him those ways. And so it was really um, a big, a big challenge to get Michael the education that he needed, um, to realize that the intelligence was there when they did the intelligence tests. His math IQ was genius level. Um, and yet he was struggling severely with reading and processing. But when we found a technique, which for Michael was Orton Gillingham, um, and he was immersed in it, he started reading. And it was amazing to me. And how I figured out he was reading is that one day he was laying on the couch and he had a book in his hand and he was laughing. And I thought to myself, he's <laughs> looking at a book and he's laughing. So he must understand what he's reading because you can't laugh about what you're reading unless you understand it. So I realized, my God, he's reading. And I went in the kitchen and, of course, cried. I was so happy. And I was so, I, I couldn't believe it that we had struggled for you know, these years, and suddenly here he was, this big gawky kind of nerdy kid lying on the couch with a book in front of his face laughing. And I went, my God, we can do this. We are going to do this. Such an amazing feeling. Yes, I, it is. I know as a parent, you know, for years and years and years we'll work on a skill, and then one day Jack will just get it, and I'll be like, I'll be damned. <sighs> All that hard work 
pays off. And it always happens, right? They're just at their yes. own pace. Exactly. It's, it's not if, it's when. And I think that we have to remind each other of that. And and it can be anything. Oh, it is so true. You know, it can be anything. And then, you know, and, and I think what I really found so wonderful was that he was helping other people ah. also because I think he understood the sensitivity it created in him from a very young age of not making fun of people yeah. and understanding that sometimes you have to struggle really made him a good kid. Yeah. He was a genuinely good kid. Yeah. And, you well, know, you are a great mom. Thank you. So <laughs> tell us, did Michael stay in public school? Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately. In our instance, no. Michael went to a special school, a special education private school. So it wasn't funded? It, no. Um, it was a school that, as I said, was completely and totally immersive. Every teacher in every subject um, was taught the Orton-Gillingham techniques um, so they, in whichever way they taught whatever subject, they still understand, understood how to teach. Yeah. And it's a really spe specific way that they work with the kids. And for him, it's what he needed. Um, but I wanted to give back. And so, um, kind of after 30 years of hospital audiences, it seemed like a good idea maybe that I should teach because everything that I had learned and everything that um, he had learned, I really wanted to just kind of give it back. So I decided the best way I could do that was to become a special ed teacher. Okay, so you went into teaching room. Yes. Um, wow, 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 wow. Before we go into that, I just want to ask a question. Because um, these were the days before the internet and online communities and, and virtual spaces in which parents would share their experience, their, mm -hmm. their struggles, their strengths. Did you interact with other parents who had kids like yours? Because, again, this was, let's see, 90, 10, 30 years ago, and the stigma was even more involved then than it is now. And, and people went to schools and segregated settings even more then than they do now. Right. Um, I, I sought out, I mean, my usual tactic to anything is reading, you know, kind of looking and reading learning, and yeah. learning. But I did seek out, and I actually sought out support groups for parents of kids with um, ADHD. And where were they? They were here in the city, so I did go to some support Affiliated groups. with hospitals or um, there's a, 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 a There was an organization, still exists today, called CHAD, oh, yeah. Children's, Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Disorder. Mm -hmm. And I went to some of their meetings, and it was amazing to me that when you walked into this room with all of these parents, they were all talking about the exact same thing, that they <laughs> couldn't get their kids to sleep, that they did, they couldn't do this, that this the homework is killing us, that we're up to the, you know, the middle of the night, all those kinds of things. And I remember one really amazing um, meeting where the... Um, facilitator for the meeting said, um, I just want to have a show of hands. How many of you found out your child had ADHD when they were three or four? Some hands went up. 
five or six. More hands went up. Seven or eight. Nearly all the hands went up. Nine or ten. A few more. So it turned out in the end to be a real bell curve. And what I realized is that it happens at around seven and eight that you really start to find out that a child um, has, you know, learning disabilities and attention deficit because that is when schoolwork starts to become really difficult and when, when the math problems become not, not just numbers, word problems. but word problems <laughs> and everything changes. And that's where we're, everybody was. Everybody was genuinely in that big, you know, point on top of the, on top of the curve. And, and our kids were struggling. Yeah. And this is back in the days where yeah. the perception was that there was only one type of ADHD, right. which was that people were in, uh, hyperactive. And the misnomer back then, which I still think applies today, is that we forget as a society that children with ADHD grow up to be adults with ADHD, right? We often yes. <laughs> associate it with kids or with boys or hyperactivity. Now we know that there's inattentive types of ADD. Right. And it's not because kids are lazy or they don't care. It's the way that the wiring works in their brain and chemicals on top of environment triggering all of that. Um, so, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell us, um, you went to teaching and I, so I decided, what did it look like? Well, um, actually I became a New York City teaching fellow and um, that was interesting. I was one of the oldest ones in the group. And I went into teaching, but um, I have to say, I don't know if it was because we kind of got whisked through the system, the teaching, the preparation, or what. I saw kids. I was. I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. They needed a high school teacher. I said I wanted to be a special ed teacher. Very few people did. Um, so they basically wanted me to be a high school special ed teacher. So I said, fine, because I want to do this. I want to give back. I want to give back for all we got from the system. And by now, Michael was in college. So he'd call me late at night when he was still up. And he'd say, Mom, are you doing your homework? And I'd say, oh, Michael, I'm so tired. I taught all day or whatever. And he says, Mom, you got to do your homework. <laughs> and Michael, please, I have a lesson plan to finish and all this. So we were kind of in college at the same time. Cool. Um, but it was a real eye-opener. But what I real, realized is that the parents really didn't know. Because by the time those kids got to me in high school, some of them were so... And I was teaching a self-contained 12-to-1 class. Where? In the Bronx. At, um, um, at, uh, in Columbus, at Columbus High School campus. Pelham Prep Academy. Mm -hmm. I was the only special special ed teacher, and they really needed more special ed teachers because there weren't just twelve kids in that school who needed special education <laughs> services. Because when I was sorry for that cynical laugh. No, when I would when I would talk to the other teachers, we would come up with lists of 40, 50 kids who really needed services, but I was the one special ed teacher teaching a 12 to 1 self-contained class. So what happened to those other 30 kids? And I started to realize that we really needed to have a voice out there. 
we really truly needed parents to understand more of what was going on. It wasn't good enough to me, for me to just reach these 12 kids. We needed to reach all 50 or 60 of them in that school. And so it was somewhat out of just, I guess, the frustration and I, that I really said to myself, I've got to do something more. I've got to start standing up for these parents. I've got to help them get what they needed for their, um, for their kids. And I, I decided at that point that maybe my best strength was in convincing other parents that they have a way to get help for their kids. And that started the parent center work. And now look at you today, still doing that. And so you started um, doing pan parent center work, I believe, at the Brooklyn Center for the Independent Disabled. Yes. And that means you've been working in this space with parents for how long now? So this is about, I guess it's about the ninth year of this. And um, I've spoken to thousands of parents. There isn't a bus or a subway train I can sit on that I don't meet somebody. I love that. And who a special education whisperer. Yes. <laughs> that look at me and say, oh, my goodness, I have to tell you where, you know, where, where John is. I have to tell you where. Oh, how nice. You know, I did this and thank you. And people walk up to me out of nowhere and tell me, I went to your workshop a long time ago and you said this and I did that. And you know what? It worked. Amazing. Yeah, so it's a good feeling. Yeah, so we, we're running out of time. And I think it would be a great way for us to end is um, what words of advice would you give to, or do you give to a parent who's first reaching out to us, um, feeling hopeless, scared, lost, anxious, and fearful of asking for help at a school level or from the Department of Education? What would you say? Um, well, the first thing is to not to lose hope, that mm. there is always some place, there's always something we can find for you, that there is a place to go. There are people out there who really care. There are great teachers. There are great people who really do want to help you. So, and you've got to ask questions. You've got to read. You've got to, you know, Find out all you can about your child's disability because the more you know, it's possible the less scared you're going to be. That's and because know. there are real success stories. So we want to make you one of those success stories. And we want you to feel smart so that you can do the best you can for your child. And no matter what, be proud of them and love them very dearly. So well said. Uh, uh, here at Include NYC, we're so lucky to have you, and our city's lucky to have you. And thank you. really want to thank you for, uh, as a as a fellow parent and yes. an includer, for your dedication to advancing the movement and all of your help. Um, thank you, Ruth. This has been great. Thank you, Lori. It's always great to talk to you. <laughs>